This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 152. Today's episode is all about attachment theory and relationships. Somebody said to me, genetics pulls the gun and environment pulls the trigger. And I'm like, I have both. And, and it wasn't until later I realized it's not genetics plus environment. It's genetics plus the stored perception of your environment. Just like you said, because of the beliefs you adapt or adopt from trauma about yourself or the world. And so because I did so much belief work with clients in my practice, what I then realized over time is that each individual attachment style actually has certain core beliefs about themselves and about other people. And I learned how to, so we we put them into basically packages of being able to go, okay, this is my attachment style. These are the associated core wounds so that then you can reprogram those exact core wounds with specific tools. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hi, friends. First of all, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, make sure to hit the subscribe button so you're always updated about new episodes. Plus, you want to know basically the best way to give back to your favorite podcasts? actually go to the iTunes app and leave a five-star review. Reviews are scientifically proven to make me love you more. That's just how it is. I love you when you leave me a review. You sit in my heart for days at a time. No, but seriously, they really help the growth of the show. They're probably the number one thing that you can do besides supporting my sponsors or joining the membership. So it's an easy, free way to give back to a podcast you love. And if you do leave me a review, send it to me at mindlovemelissa on Instagram, and I'll send you a free meditation track. This week, I want to share a review I got from T. Chantel. She said, my soul loves this podcast. I gain something from every single episode, and it feels like it fuels my soul and my self-growth. Melissa has such a calming voice. I love her morning mind love emails, and I look forward to waking up to them every morning. So thank you, thank you, thank you for that review. I loved it and it totally lit up my week. But now into the good stuff. Have you ever noticed that you have certain patterns in your relationships? Maybe you tend to get a little too clingy a little too fast. Or maybe when it starts to get serious, you pull away. Or maybe you don't set any boundaries at all and then suddenly snap and lash out. I think I've done all of these things, (laughs) but I think we all have patterns in relationships and they might change or evolve over time, but we still tend to show up to a relationship with our own set of baggage, just ready to dump it out when we start to feel comfortable enough or uncomfortable enough for that matter. So where do these patterns come from? Are some of us just born insecure or non-committal or a little bit clingy? Or maybe it has to do with how we were raised. They do say people tend to date their mothers or their fathers. Or maybe our patterns are reactionary to the person that we're with. I've seen my patterns totally evolve over time. And for the most part, a lot of my patterns seem to be the counterpart of the person I was with. In a few relationships, I was pretty clingy. That especially seemed to happen in relationships that I could just feel that they weren't really committing fully. Almost like if I could commit hard enough, I could commit for them. It's kind of sad looking back on those relationships because it was almost as though I was so committed I would put up with anything. Cheating, lying, emotional manipulation, one time even finding out that my boyfriend was cheating, doing meth, and secretly robbing houses. Yeah, my self-worth was obviously off the charts. Well, then I found a relationship with someone who wasn't a sociopath, and I remember almost being bewildered by his commitment. So I was the one who wouldn't quite go all in. It felt scary to me. I think a bunch of factors played into this. First, I was obviously afraid of being hurt so deeply. So to me, the solution was simple. I just wouldn't let him in deep enough to hurt me that deep. I also think part of me finally felt good to be on the other side of that commitment tug of war. Kind of how kids that were abused often become the abusers. I mean, that example is kind of intense, but you get the gist. And then I think another part of it was that 
I was just able to feel secure enough to remember that I had real boundaries. And since I had never really been able to voice my boundaries before, I just went full force with them once I could. I don't know. I think we can analyze our past behavior endlessly and probably still only scratch the surface. I mean, we're complex little shits, you know? Well, thankfully, now I'm in a relationship that feels really secure. I spent a lot of time learning to love myself or really just learning to be with myself and be comfortable with the person that I am. And I think the work that I did in that time I was alone really enabled me to find someone who fit the real me when I was ready. But man, what a journey to get here. And truthfully, most of the time I was just flying by the seat of my pants, finding help in books and in my own missteps and doing the wrong things to learn what didn't work. Wouldn't it be great if we had a little insight into why so many of us approach relationships like parasites or abused little kittens, neither of which is very attractive, I might add. We know where we came from. So what insight can we get from how we were raised and what needs were and weren't met so that we can make sure we heal ourselves now? That's what we're talking about today, specifically attachment theory. Attachment theory is the study about how our relationships with a parent or a primary giver basically create our expectations for how love should be. It's really, really fascinating, and I find that you get a lot of insight into how you're showing up in relationships today just by that insight. So our guest today is Thais Gibson. She's an author, speaker, and co-creator of the Personal Development School. She has a master's degree and over 13 different certifications, ranging from CBT to hypnosis. And she's best known for her work and research on attachment theory and how trauma impacts our adult romantic relationships. She's also the author of the Attachment Theory Guide. And what's really unique about her work in this area is that she's created her own system, which integrates all these other aspects of ourselves, like our personal core wounds, our limiting beliefs, and our emotional patterns, all at the subconscious level, so that we can get deeper insight into ourselves and our relationships. Three key things we will learn are how our early experiences impact our relationships through attachment styles the inner beliefs that affect each attachment style the most, and how to reprogram our minds to transform the limiting programs that we're holding onto so that we can actually attract healthy relationships. But before we dive in, do you ever wish you could start each day with a little reminder that we're more than our struggles? Just sign up for the Morning Mind Love for daily inspirational messages right to your inbox. I get messages from people every single day about how the morning mind love is their favorite way to start their day, or that the message that came through is exactly what they needed to hear. It's kind of like your own personal inspiration oracle. Just visit mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Plus, you'll get some amazing free gifts when you do, like a free guided binaural affirmation meditation designed to rewire your brain to your highest self. And you'll get one of my favorite tools, a booklet of my personal power list to help you gain clarity and live each day with intention. And it's all completely free. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, text the word morning to 33777. That's morning to 33777. And now let's welcome Thais Gibson to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So to start out, what is your story and how did you become so interested in attachment theory specifically? Um, so my story is probably a pretty long story, but I guess the the gist of it is I went through a whole bunch of kind of interesting childhood experiences, just like a lot of chaos and stuff in my home life and, and definitely some like big unresolved traumas that I'm not sure I learned how to deal with or even had the tools to properly emotionally process. And that led me to really having an outlet in sports. So I, I played Division One soccer and got a full scholarship. But far prior to that happening, as a competitive athlete, I had a big knee surgery when I was um, 14 years old and got addicted to my painkillers um, at that age and ended up like seeking them out and, and really having a, a big seven or so year battle with addiction and, and um, you know, daily use of opiates and just really trying to like struggle to figure out what was happening to me. Cause it's sort of a lonely road at like 14, 15. I didn't know anybody else who's like addicted to painkillers and, and all that kind of stuff. So 
that set me out on a track for sure at a young age to be like, why, number one, have I experienced some of the things I'm experiencing in my household and some of the chaos? But number two, like, why am I not able to beat this addiction? Like I was trying, it scared me. Like I had my first experience of going through withdrawals from something before I even knew what withdrawals were. So it's sort of like this scary experience. And it really got me in touch with like trying to figure out my mind and how the mind worked. And after trying a whole bunch of different things, like, you know, inpatient rehab, outpatient rehab, therapy, all these different things, AA meetings, NA meetings, you know, you name it, nothing was really working. And then one day I came across a a friend of mine in a class. I was still like going to school and pretty high functioning um, as an addict, but he said to me like, yeah, the conscious mind can't outwill or overpower the subconscious mind. And it like shook my world because it really put into perspective this like struggle that I was going through internally on a daily basis of like, this is the last time I'm not going to do this again. I'm done with this. And then, you know, three hours later, I'm back to the same thing. And it's like, it's a very tormenting experience to go through addiction because you keep telling yourself, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. And then you keep going back to it. And it just feels like you're like losing this battle to yourself, which through him saying that. I realized was my conscious mind losing the battle to my subconscious mind. And it really opened up this perspective for me on trying to understand like, okay, you know, what is unresolved within me that my subconscious keeps trying to escape pain through painkillers? And how can I correct those things at a deeper level so that I can have the healing and then not have to fight this battle? And so I ended up going back to school for doing a master's degree in transpersonal psychology And then doing 13 different certifications, a lot of which involve the subconscious mind. So like your hypnosis, your NLP type stuff. I also did like CBT, um, internal family systems, all all kinds of different stuff. But that then led me to open a practice. I went through a tremendous tremendous amount of healing as a person, which was really, really beautiful. And I'm so friggin' grateful for. And then led uh, private practice for the better part of a decade, and then went on to open um, the personal development school just because I had this really long, like two years, so wait list for clients. And it was like, how can I serve more people and, and get this information out there in a way that's not me having to personally be there all the time? And so that has led to basically where I'm at today. That's amazing. You know, I have a few people in my family that are really struggling with opiates. And it's something that on one hand, I understand deeply because all the things that you describe, I could replace opiates with bulimia. And it was just a crazy thing. Like there was so long that I did not want to do it anymore that it wasn't at all. Like, and it started for a purpose. It was like, oh, I can eat whatever I want and, and not have any consequences from it. And it really actually started from drinking because I would drink too much and be like, okay, I don't want to get blacked out right now. I'll just go like throw up some of it real fast. And like, to me, it felt like this weird little superpower. And then before I knew it, it took over my life. And for people who are familiar with bulimia that are listening, they know that it's not the best way to regulate your weight at all. You actually go like balloon up and then you'll shrink down and you'll balloon up. And it was about every year and a half for me, I noticed I would either be overweight or underweight or whatever. And so it wasn't serving the original purpose whatsoever, but I kept going back to it. But as far as the substance abuse, I was always much more drawn to uppers than downers. And so I've always kind of been curious when you're going through that at such a young age, did you specifically know I need my pills right now? Or was it like, I just feel uncomfortable right now? Like, were you tying together what that addiction really was? And what in those moments that you were reaching for another pill? What was it that you were feeling or craving? It's such a great question. And it's such a an interesting sort of conversation about how things sneak up on you. Because at first, like, you know, you get out of surgery, and it was a pretty intense knee surgery. And I was on crutches for six weeks and no weight bearing and all these different things. And so at first, you're just like, you know, taking these painkillers and you're kind of in this like days post-surgery. And then, you know, a couple of weeks in, I'm like not in pain, but I realized like, you know, this just makes me feel like kind of good and just a little bit better and just like more calm and like things are easier and like kind of just that numbing feeling. And I'm definitely like, you know, as a human being, like a big feeler and feel a lot and have a lot of emotions. And I think I was experiencing a lot of that and then experiencing a lot of fear around like, am I not going to get a scholarship because I just had this surgery? And there was a lot of still just friction and chaos in my house and a lot of just fighting and, and a lot of challenges. And, um, and it was like, it just made life easier. And then when I ran out 
Um, like I remember getting, you know, asking, saying, like faking that I was in more pain to get, you know, my prescription refilled. And then it actually happened that I came across this girl who was a couple years older than me. And she was like, oh, you have painkillers. Like painkillers are also performance enhancers. And in my mind, I was like, oh, so this is great for me long term when I come back and I'm trying to like make up for lost time being an athlete, trying to like get a scholarship in the next year. So there were like a few things that played into it. And then she also happened to be somebody who was who was selling them. Right. So I'm sure. But I was like, oh, OK. And then, you know, finding that out and then running out a second time and knowing I wasn't in pain, but knowing that these things made me feel better and then asking her and then kind of justifying it to myself for a while, like oh, you know, it's not a big deal. Like I, you know, I had a big surgery and like, you know, it's normal to like have to extend things. And my parents aren't going to understand like, you know, and then just, it's just becomes a slippery slope. And then, you know, you're doing more of them and you're seeking out more and you're, and it's just, it has this sort of snowball effect. And, and then at one time I couldn't get them. And it was about six months into the whole sort of addiction journey. And I experienced withdrawals and I didn't know what was happening. Like I was like, oh, I have a flu, like I'm sick, but I'm like itchy and weird feeling and my skin's kind of crawling and like, and then doing some research and realizing like, oh my goodness, this is a scary thing. And this like, it puts me in a different sort of component. And then it's funny because it's almost like that fear actually fed into it. It was like, I started like identifying with like, oh, I have an addiction. And then it like, it, it honestly made it worse. And And it was sort of like, then I started fighting it and being against it. And like, oh, I have to get over this, but just, it, and it, it really put me in this battle from like that kind of tipping point forward. And it's interesting because I later learned something called the ironic processing theory in psychology. And it's this idea that your subconscious mind doesn't really hear negatives. Like if I'm like, don't eat junk food, don't eat bad food, don't eat bad food. What happens is because the subconscious mind speaks in the language of emotion and imagery. If I'm like, oh, don't eat cookies, don't eat cookies, don't eat donuts or whatever, your subconscious is like donuts, cookies, like, and it, and, and it actually builds in like emotional sensations and it directs you towards those things. And so, you know, it's like the idea, if I say, don't think of the pink elephant, like, Oh, you, what do you picture? Like right away you have a pink elephant come to mind. So what I realized looking back is the like, Oh, I'm an addict, but stay away from this. This is bad. Don't do this. Don't do this. And, and that fight that was born within me was actually feeding the cycle at a subconscious level without me realizing and I later learned that, and that was a pivotal part of healing, but it's just, it's so interesting the way we're not given like resources or tools or we're not taught about the subconscious mind. And at the end of the day, our subconscious is responsible for roughly 95 to 97% of our feelings, our thoughts, our behaviors, and our conscious mind is three to 5%. So if we're not taught to tap into that like storehouse of everything that's happening, then we're really limited in our capacity to heal or change. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word morning to 33777. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. 
I really relate to, you were talking about hearing from this one girl, which I don't know, I feel like she should work for Big Pharma at some point, <laughs> just like selling like, oh, I sell this thing. But first, let me tell you how amazing it is. But she, um, she basically got you to believe like, oh, this is also going to be really helpful. And that mirrors my experience with Adderall, where I remember learning, well, actually, first it was depression medication after my dad died. And I remember kind of Googling, the the doctor said, well, here's one medication. And I wasn't really sure I liked it, but then I looked into it and I started to see all of these depression medications. And I saw that Wellbutrin specifically was also an appetite suppressant or people would lose weight on it. And I was like, oh, interesting. And that kind of started my spiral on how can I find the next medication that gets me all of these other benefits. And you even hear about, oh, well, the birth control pill makes your boobs bigger and it regulates this. And there's like, <laughs> and so I remember just having this, like, like putting medications on a pedestal, which is why now I'm so hesitant. Like, I'm like, okay, I better need this. Like, <laughs> I will use it if there's something very, very wrong and it's the only way to heal. And I haven't tried any other healing modalities because I think it really affects your attachment to it. I, I did Adderall for over 10 years and it was like, I just held it dear to my heart. I was like proud that I took Adderall because it did all of these things for me. And, and I would tell people, oh yeah, I take Adderall. And certain people were also like, oh my gosh, you have Adderall? Can I have one? You know what I mean? And it's just like, it's crazy. And, and who knows how long it takes to, it reminds me of relationships, bad relationships where you're like holding them on this pedestal and, so even though they're basically beating you into submission half the time, you're like, but everyone else thinks he's amazing or, but he did this one thing for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I love that. I love that analogy. I think it's so powerful. And it's like, and what that really is in so many different things is that our subconscious mind, every single decision it makes is a subconscious strategy to get specific needs met. So it's like, oh yeah, like I stay in the relationship and it's because you're valuing whatever needs are met from that relationship more than whatever pain is coming from it. And it's like the same thing. It's the same pattern with our addictions. It's, it's like, it's like, yeah, I know that I'm like, this is a scary thing and I'm becoming addicted and I'm like this kid and, or, you know, you're on Adderall and, and, but it's like, oh, well look, it's like an emotional connection piece. Cause people are like, oh cool. You're on Adderall or it suppresses my appetite. And if that's a high need of importance that you're placing value on, then your subconscious will justify oh my gosh, but it does this, it does this. And it will naturally ignore the red flags or the other components because it's valuing the needs that it's extracting from the experience so much further. So this is actually a good segue into the idea of attachment theory, because I know how much childhood experiences do affect the way that we attach to things later on. But can you give an overview of what attachment theory is first? Yes, absolutely. So the, the way I like to explain it to people is, um, and it's originally John Bowlby's work, but the way I like to explain it to people is that basically it's a subconscious set of rules that we use to relate to others and to attach or bond to others. And if you think of like two different people, and let's say we're playing like Monopoly, but each individual has a different set of rules for Monopoly. You know, one person has like the rules for Go Fish and the other person has the rules <laughs> for Monopoly. And you're sitting there playing this game. You're going to run into all of these challenges because you have a different set of rules for how to play. And we have different attachment styles and each different attachment style basically comes with a different set of rules for how to connect and relate to each other. And so it can become highly problematic, just as it would be if you're playing a board game with two different sets of rules in terms of how we navigate relationship and what relationships and what we expect from relationships and what our fears and wounds are and the ways we give and receive love. And all these things are different based on what our attachment style is. And so until we figure those components out, things can be very limiting and we can take things really personally and we can have all these challenges and fears and, and misunderstandings take place. And so attachment theory basically encompasses a whole bunch of different ways of understanding the rules we have for relating to other people. So given your experience with going through addiction and, and just having a, some struggles in your childhood, how did that affect your personal attachment style? Yeah. So it's a great question. So what I guess I can share is like the different types of attachment styles and then I'll share like what mine was and how it all kind of comes together um, for anybody who doesn't know. So basically there's like a securely attached style and this is what we're all trying to move towards, right? Is the securely attached person usually in their childhood 
they have their needs met, they have their feelings seen and heard and held space for. And basically as a byproduct of that, they learn, okay, my feelings are worthy of being expressed. It's safe to be vulnerable with others. My needs are worthy of being met, which creates an inherent feeling of self-esteem and self-confidence and self-worth. And, you know, if I have a boundary or, or I need to communicate something, that's worthy of being heard as well and seen and understood. And so, these individuals grow up to have like usually healthy, thriving relationships and higher levels of self-esteem and self-confidence. And, and then we have our three insecurely attached individuals or styles. And these all basically don't get those same sorts of positive programs with how we relate to other people. And so the three insecurely attached styles are at one end of the spectrum. It's dismissive avoidance. And dismissive avoidance are usually grow up in a childhood where they have some form of emotional neglect. And it can be like, you know, a tremendous emotional neglect and physical neglect where a parent leaves or the parents are actually like neglectful or negligent. Um, but then it can also be the under the radar emotional neglect. So like, you know, the, the parents are good with meeting the physical needs, but the parents don't talk about emotions or maybe as a male, you're shamed for your emotions or there's no emotional space held or, you know, children should be seen and not heard. You know, these sorts of things that can otherwise fly under the radar because maybe all their physical needs are met and they're in a good school and they, they're eating well and, you know, all these basic needs are taken care of. And so what happens from that is this child basically learns that, okay, my feelings should not be expressed. So vulnerability is bad and weak and closeness to people doesn't feel good because it just feels like I'm being rejected by my caregivers when I try to express emotion. And so usually this person goes into their adult lives and they become hyper-independent. They don't really like commitment or closeness. They'll often push people away in relationships when things get more serious or, or closeness is required. And they often have like a deep subconscious wound around shame. Um, because if you're a child and an important emotional needs not met, you don't have the capacity necessarily to go, oh, mom and dad, are not emotionally available. Instead, you're like, oh, there must be something wrong with me. And so usually this person has that deep belief at their core. And so that's sort of like one end of the spectrum. And then the opposite end of the insecure attachment style spectrum, you have your anxious preoccupied. And this individual usually is very anxious in their relationships. They usually have a big fear of abandonment or being alone. And it's because they usually had a lot of inconsistency in their parenting or in their from their parents or caregivers in, in childhood. And so usually they had a lot of emotional closeness, but then maybe the parents were working a lot or maybe one parent was warm and another parent was cold. And so this person usually fears that feeling of that, that love and connection being taken away because it was a wound for them in childhood. And so they go on in their adult lives to sometimes seem clingy or needy or, um, you know, very intense and, and not wanting to be alone and fearing abandonment. And usually the anxious and the dismissive avoidant attract each other in relationships. And so you can imagine, you know, that board game, right? It's like <laughs> one person's like, stay away. And the other person's like, come back. And, and it just creates this sort of funny cycle. And then our last one is the fearful avoidant. And so this is what I was. And usually this is the attachment cell associated with like some form of trauma that's pretty consistent in somebody's upbringing. And so this can be because there's like lots of violence in the household or there's physical fighting or abuse. It can be that there's just a lot of verbal fighting and, and intensity. It can be that the, one or both parents are drug addicts or caregiver, like um, one of the caregivers is, is an addict or an alcoholic. And basically there's some kind of positive connection, the positive associations built in with connection, like love feels good, but love can't be trusted and love is scary and connection is scary at the same time. And usually there's some big trust wounds in there too. And, and it can also be because of like a tremendous loss or some big family trauma that takes place at a young age. And so this adult usually goes into their lives and it's like, they want closeness, but then when people get too close, they become avoidant. So they sort of experience the anxious side of the attachment spectrum and the dismissive. And they're constantly sort of swinging from like, come close, come close. And then you get closer, like, no, 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 go away, get back. And so they're sort of the hot and cold partner in their adult lives. And that can create a lot of confusion for obviously the person of that attachment style. And they usually have some pretty big trust wounds to work through. But then it also can create a lot of confusion for other people who are like, oh my goodness, the person's so warm. And then they're so cold and, and standoffish and they push me away. And, and so there's sort of a lot of swinging of the pendulum from anxious to avoidant for the fearful avoidant attachment style. So yeah. fascinating because... I can listen to all of those and there's, it's almost like in different types of my life, a few of those have really stood out to me. I have definitely been anxious in my earlier relationships, 
But I, for some reason in my later relationships, I became more avoidant. And I've tried to look back into this to, to figure out like, well, I actually had a really great relationship with my mom. My parents were divorced, but I think one of the things that affected my relationships wasn't so much the parents that I had, well, other than maybe not really having like a stable dad in my life, but I moved schools all the time. Like when my mom met my stepdad, we had to move. And then like we, there wasn't room in the school I was supposed to be in. So I had to go to one school for half a year. And then we got into the other school and then we moved across the city. So we had to move schools because of the boundaries. And, and I was in a different school like every year <laughs> for like five years. Does that, could something like that not directly being related to parents, just maybe other parts of your childhood or the environment that you were in, could that affect your attachment style as yeah. well? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Could something like that not directly being related to parents, just maybe other parts of your childhood or the environment that you were in, could that affect your attachment style as yeah, well? 100%. So a few things you said all can like make that impact. So if I want to sort of put it into parts for a second, because you raised so many important questions in one. So the first thing is like, can your attachment style change over time? And the answer is yes, you can be polarized across the insecure attachment style spectrum based on who you're dating. So like if you're with somebody dismissive, and let's say you're a fearful avoidant, like let's say you're in the middle kind of, you'll experience more of your anxious side of the fearful avoidance. Because remember, the fearful avoidant has the anxious and the dismissive. Then if you're with somebody who's really anxious, you'll become the more avoidant part of yourself. So that's one thing for people to notice. Another thing is our attachment style can change like at any point in time, just if there's enough programming that's taken place. So you can have somebody who's secure and then they can go through a big trauma at like 15 or 20 and that can create insecurity in their ways they relate to others. Like, especially if there's, you know, some kind of like scary relationship or some kind of loss of a relationship that you really valued, all of a sudden it can be like, oh my goodness, well, love feels bad now and scary. And, and so we can take that into future relationships. So those things can change. And then also to answer the third part is for sure, if there's like a big divorce and if one parent's missing, that can create an avoidance side of, of an attachment style or an anxious side. It can really go in both ways. And on top of that, if there's extra added instability, like you're moving around all the time and you can't just like get situated and settled, then for sure that will play a role as well. So, you know, it sounds to me like you would probably fit the most with fearful avoidant because you sound like you have sort of both of those sides. And then there was the moving a lot and like that inconsistency and then that and so so there's so many dynamics but it's such a I think great example for other people who are listening and are like 
what am I? What might I be? And so all of those things will play a role. And I was fearful of one myself and, and from for different reasons, but you can see like it's sort of the the broad picture of what it means to connect with others, to relate to others, and, and how much stability and, and consistency is naturally in your life. So. One thing I find really interesting is um, because I've been on both sides of the addiction spectrum and there was a while that I was dating somebody that had an addiction. And so I started going to all of the Al-Anon meetings and learning about mm-hmm. codependency. And and one thing that really stood out, because people would always say, well, addiction is a family disease. It affects the whole family because what happens, or even really anything, any sort of mental anything, because what happens is this one person is very set in their ways or they have a certain way of being. And so the other people around tend to adapt to make it a more comfortable living situation, whether it's like something actually like an addiction or whether it's something like extreme ADD. And so it's what I found really interesting as I've evolved and learned more about myself is I really relate to being an empath and I feel that it's getting stronger as I get older. And I know a lot of listeners out there feel like they're an empath also. And so it makes me wonder, are empaths more susceptible to kind of these fluctuating attachment styles depending on who their relationship is? Because they can feel so much the other person, sometimes even more so than what they're feeling on their own. Does does that make any sense? A hundred percent. So it's so funny. I actually like put a video on YouTube or something like yesterday or maybe today about like HSPs or empaths and your attachment style. And and there's definitely a stronger correlation between being um, an empath and being either fearful avoidant and or anxious preoccupied. And and a lot of the the dynamics. So so there's a, an amazing TED talk about this, but the highly sensitive person or empath is actually like a genetic variation. It's found on like DDR axon 7L4. And and basically it's characterized by four key things. It's like depth of processing, um, being highly analytical, but also highly emotional. And then obviously like sensitivity to your environment and, and overstimulation and things like that. So so um, you have these like components. And then I think if you're already that child and you come into the world, then I think you're very sensitive to like the way you attach to others and the bonds and, and, and what takes place. And so I think it sets a tone to be more likely to develop an insecure attachment style. But, you know, there, it's so interesting because it's like there's all these beautiful things in, in learning your attachment style and learning your patterns and programs. And I think sometimes those same individuals with that really heightened sensitivity also maybe go through challenges and tribulations, but then also are more likely to be able to recover from them because there's that like depth of awareness into the self if you're willing to turn that awareness and focus inwards. And then I think the more we heal as people as well, the more we naturally go back and into being in tune with our feelings. And so it can feel like our sensitivity is heightened in a way as we heal as well. But I think that that sensitivity the tightened is actually bringing us back to like how we're supposed to feel. And then we have the tools to actually process our feelings and emotions and make sense of things and set boundaries and do all the sort of work required to be able to feel so much, but then to still feel like we're healthy and balanced in the world, if that makes sense. It does. And so with your life experience of going through an addiction and all the things you went through in your childhood, how did that lead you to your you said you were an avoidant attachment style, correct? How did that lead to that? Yeah. So I was a fearful avoidant. So I was the one that sort of associated with like the trauma and there was a lot of chaos in my house, like a lot of, a lot of fighting and physical fighting back and forth and just like people not getting along very well <laughs> to say the very least. And so, so I think like, you know, and, and both of my parents, I think, um, you know, they're very like loving people and, and feel a lot. And both of them went through like a tremendous amount of trauma in their upbringing. And so obviously those things sort of get passed along. And so what sort of happened for myself is that both my parents would speak to me a lot about the stuff that they were going through as well. And kind of like emotionally tell me things like about what dad did and what mom did and and this back and forth. And I was very caught in the middle. And so I think from a really young age, I was like, you know, feeling a lot. I definitely identify with being a highly sensitive person as well. And I was taking on all this like drama and chaos and what was going to happen and and felt very responsible for other people. So I definitely also, like you mentioned, had these patterns of codependency to work through. And all of that is kind of associated with being fearful avoidant. And so a lot of what takes place is, is I think I had all these feelings all of these unresolved emotions, they were all kind of just being like repressed. And then, you know, painkillers come along and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, 
something like makes me feel like what I imagined other people would normally feel like. And it just made life easier to do and navigate for a period of time. And, and then ultimately it, it sparked that really painful battle within myself and that feeling like I was at war with myself and wanting to get sober and wanting to get healthy and being like, you know, paranoid that the NCAA is going to drug test me and I'm going to fail and just all these like things. I'm like, I need to get over this. And then for me, like when I started learning about the subconscious mind, that was a big change. And then when I learned about attachment theory and how your attachment style has these specific core wounds and has these specific needs and, and, you know, fearful ones are associated as being like quite codependent people and taking on other people's feelings and feeling responsible to fix or change or heal people. And so all these things were like really resonating with me and it really gave me direction for like what to focus on next in my life. And so through like understanding my attachment style, through understanding the subconscious mind and and the tools to overcome addiction by realizing like the problem isn't the problem. It's not the painkillers that are the problem. They're not like jumping down my throat while I'm sleeping. Like it's actually the underlying trauma that I'm trying to escape from that I'm carrying at a subconscious level. That's the problem. A lot of doing that underlying work and learning how to reprogram the painful beliefs I had about myself and other people because of what I had gone through. Learning how to understand my needs and and understand that I have boundaries and not be codependent and actually advocate for my own boundaries and needs and how that actually helped me to release resentment in relationships. Doing a lot of work on on forgiveness and, and releasing resentment. A lot of these things long term. It's like once I could deal with all the underlying patterns and problems and reprogram them and reprogram that stored emotion in my nervous system and subconscious mind, then naturally the need for killing pain with painkillers went away because that pain had been transformed into something else. And so that led to definitely healing addiction, but also healing my attachment style. You said something that really stood out because it was a huge part of a lot of my, a lot of the areas in my life I needed healing from. And you said when you started to learn to reprogram the beliefs. And the reason I think beliefs is such an important word here is because I remember after I started realizing, oh, a lot of the things that are happening in my life right now are because of the trauma that I've gone through. At first, I didn't know what to do with that because I'm like, okay, well, now I've been traumatized. And so it ruined me. You know what I mean? And it didn't feel empowering. And it was when I started to understand that it's not necessarily that the trauma led to me doing this. It's that the trauma led to a belief about myself or about the world or about other people. And that belief is living in my subconscious and driving my behavior. So it's like the the belief is the middleman between what actually happened and how your life is unfolding now, because that's the part that's driving the behavior. So when you start to notice, like maybe I'm this attachment style, how do you start to get to that middleman and and understand what beliefs are attached to that attachment style so that you can start to reprogram them? Yes. Okay. So you raised like the most beautiful point. I'm going to share a quick like story about that because I went through the exact same realization as a human being. And it was, I was in I think an AA meeting or I can't even remember, but somebody said to me, genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. And it was that same thing. I think it was like 18 at the time. And I was like, okay, so genetics, my grandparents struggled with addiction and they say, you know, it skips a generation and I'm going, okay, so genetics, I'm screwed. And then environment, like I had all these crazy things happen. And so I'm like, I have both. And it wasn't until later I realized it's not genetics plus environment. It's genetics plus the stored perception of your environment, just like you said, because of the beliefs you adapt or adopt from trauma um, about yourself or the world. And so um, what I created, so this isn't a part of regular attachment theory, but we sort of created like integrated attachment theory was actually that because I did so much belief work with clients in my practice. What I then realized over time is that each individual attachment style actually has certain core beliefs about themselves and about other people. And I learned how to, so we put them into basically packages of being able to go, okay, this is my attachment style. These are the associated core wounds so that then you can reprogram those exact core wounds with specific tools. So for dismissive avoidance, um, a lot of the core wounds, one of the big ones is I am unsafe. Something's wrong with me or I am defective. I will be trapped, helpless, or powerless in vulnerability or in commitment. And then obvious feelings about obvious things about I am weak If I'm vulnerable, I am weak. If I open myself up, my emotions make me weak. So a lot of these big beliefs 
are the dismiss avoidant, which is the most avoidant attachment style, right? And then the anxious preoccupied individual, because they have all those abandonment fears, their core wounds are, I will be alone. I will be abandoned. I will be disliked. I don't belong. I am excluded. I am unsafe if I am disconnected. And so you can see these individuals, right? It's like, The anxious person, if they ever feel excluded from like a group activity or something like that, it's so painful for them. And so wherever we have a lot of pain, when we can convert it, because it's not the situation that causes the pain, it's the meaning we give to the situation. And that meaning that we give is usually highly personal because it's not actually, out of all the meaning we could give to anything, it's not going to be about the situation. It's going to be about the meaning that's living inside of us that we carry in those beliefs, in those stories about ourselves, like you were mentioning. And so that's your anxious preoccupied. And then our fearful avoidant, The biggest wound is usually I can't trust. I will be betrayed. And then beyond that, they have sort of the wounds from both sides of the attachment spectrum. So yes, some of the fears around exclusion, abandonment, being alone, being disconnected. And then a lot of big fears around being, I am, you know, what if I'm trapped, helpless, or powerless? Like they really don't like feeling like there's no control. Again, because usually if you're in an environment as a child where you feel like, whoa, this is crazy, it's so chaotic, the I have no control or I am helpless is such a profound wound. So that and I can't trust or I will be betrayed are really strong wounds. And then, you know, deeper, more unconscious feelings of I am unsafe or something's wrong with me and some of those shame feelings. And also I am bad. Fearful ones have a huge, huge issue. If they ever feel like they hurt somebody's feelings or do something wrong, they really struggle with guilt. So those are the core wounds, those beliefs that I've learned really are highly, highly likely to be accompanying each of those individual attachment styles, if that makes sense. It totally does. And I get really excited about uncovering beliefs just because, again, like I felt disempowered by a lot of these things that had happened to me. Like, And the same thing where I'm like, there's so much addiction in my family. There's this in my family. Like, I'm just destined for this life. But what I found is that instead of looking at them in a negative way, the more you know about your past, whether it's your ancestral history or your own history, the more awareness you bring to it, the more you can use it as guideposts on how to heal. You can also use it to kind of skip around some of the pitfalls because it's sort of like, okay, well, if I have a stroller with a shaky wheel, then you don't put all your weight on that last wheel. (laughs) You know what I mean? You can, you can kind of balance it out. And so you can view these things not as a roadmap to what your life is going to turn out to be, but as more of like, oh, well, here's going to be something that could be a struggle for me. So how can I build my life around that to where I'm reinforcing all the other areas so that I keep my strength? And so uncovering these beliefs is exciting for me. But when you do uncover them, what do you do with that then? So it's yeah. like, you, we know your, our styles. We know we identify with some of these beliefs that we can feel when we hear how do we start to reprogram that so that they don't just completely drive our lives into one exit? <laughs> I love that. So the million dollar question, right? So basically, here's what we know. So the subconscious mind, whenever we have, uh, if you imagine like how something takes place to give like sort of the mechanics to the listeners, if you imagine the trauma, like when we have a traumatic event, what happens is when we can't figure out how to properly emotionally process it, the mind tries to make sense of it by giving it meaning. So like, let's say, for example, you see your parents fighting and you go, I am helpless or I am unsafe or I am. And and your brain tries to remember this so that if the event recurs, you can navigate it better next time. You know, oh, here's this thing. I'm going to be unsafe. So I have to do something about it. But the downside of that is that long term, because emotion imprints the subconscious mind, when there's a lot of emotion, we get these deep imprints and then they become part of the story of ourselves at a deep level. And then we keep reprojecting that wound out onto everything because these core beliefs we carry about ourselves at a subconscious level basically become part of our identity. And then we see the world and we interact with the world through that lens of these core wounds. So if I believe I'm unsafe, I'm probably going out into the world like thinking, oh my goodness, what if I'm out past this time and it's dark? Or what if this happens? What if that happens? And we probably think through that filter because it's a part of our subconscious identity. So we can use these same principles to actually reprogram. So what we know is that the subconscious is programmed through repetition plus emotion, but it speaks a lot more and it's imprinted a lot more quickly through emotion than through language. So for example, you can have no core wound that you're unsafe, but if you're in a building with an earthquake and the building falls down and all these people die around you, 
chances are you're going to have some nervous system stuff where you leave that day and you start feeling unsafe in the world because the intensity of the emotion has the ability to imprint or reprogram the subconscious mind instantly versus we have something like affirmations where you could believe you could have a belief from childhood that you're unsafe and then every day you could go, okay, I'm safe, I am safe, I am safe. But here's the really big like catch-22 when we talk about affirmations. Because the subconscious mind speaks through emotion and not through language very much, if we say, I am safe, I am safe, I am safe, but we don't believe that, and in fact, we really feel the opposite, or if we go, I'm good enough, I'm good enough, I'm good enough, but we feel you know, very strongly otherwise, then what happens is every time we use an affirmation at the conscious level, it elicits a negative emotional response, which just reinforces that original wound. So if we go, I'm good enough, and we don't feel that way, and we've been programmed that we're not good enough, then we're going to spit out this feeling of like, no, but I'm not good enough. And so it doesn't really work. And so how we hack that that system or that that problem, the subconscious mind responds to evidence because it speaks through imagery. So if I say I'm good enough because I have this education or I have this award or this whatever it is, right? Every time we think of that thing, it contains an image. And that actually has the ability to, to penetrate the subconscious mind. And then the more emotion we can come up with in that image. So like, let's say you were so proud of yourself that you graduated from school and that day of your graduation, and you think about all the hard work and you feel. So the more we can get images and emotion, the faster we speed up the reprogramming process. So whenever we're trying to, you know, given all that information, just how it actually works is if you're trying to reprogram any core wound, you are trying to find pieces of evidence on a daily basis because you need the repetition component for 21 days. So let's say I am good enough. You want 10 or 15 pieces of evidence every day for why you're good enough. And you want to lace that piece of evidence with as much emotion as possible. So I'm good enough because, and you want to feel about that, and you want to think about as many specifics as possible to find how you're good enough. And if you're doing that on a daily basis for about 21 days, um, especially if there's more emotion attached to it, then you will absolutely be reprogramming your subconscious mind. And one last little hack you can add in there is the subconscious mind is very suggestible first thing in the morning and late at night before you go to bed because you're producing more alpha and theta brainwaves, which are the brainwaves you need to be hypnotized. So if you do these like these affirmation plus evidence reprogrammings early in the morning when you first wake up or late before bed, you can also speed up the process and also help to imprint your own subconscious mind more deeply. I love that. I do something very similar. I've thought of it in sort of a different way, but there was a time that I was really working on abundance and it was really hard for me to wrap my mind around abundance when I was broke and trying to first grow my business. And like, (laughs) I had been working for a startup for less pay than it should have been for a long time. So this had felt like a lot of different things had been promised and then not necessarily panned out. So for me to start my own business, I knew I really needed to get a hold of this mindset idea. And so what I would do is I had to remind myself, because when you hear abundance, you often think about money, but I had to remind myself that abundance can apply to so many other areas in life. Like it could be that I have an abundance of love or I have an abundance of energy. And so I would find the things that I knew I was already really sure about my abundance in and I would go do those things. And then those would be the moments right after like going on a little run or doing yoga or being with a group of friends and getting like a group hug. And I would be like, this is abundance. And then I would use those moments when I was at a heightened emotional state to really say, I am abundant, I'm abundant, I'm abundant. And then, and then I would kind of envision what abundance looked like in this other area. And I thought, think that was so powerful for me because so often we tie this word that we think we have a struggle with, with one avenue in our life of what that could be. So maybe it's like, I am safe and you're used to not feeling safe at home, but maybe there's just one person you feel safe with or one spot in the world you feel safe in. And realizing that there's other areas, it's just your emotions, your negative emotions are so tied in this one. So you have to figure out how to basically hack your emotional state so that you can remember, oh, this isn't the only place for this to be. And eventually I can kind of adopt it, if that makes sense. I love that. So so it's so funny because you're like, we're very in resonance. So the two things I tell people if they're stuck, because sometimes people have like such a belief that they're not good enough or that they're in lack or, you know, they're like, I, I'm trying to give pieces of evidence and it's not working. And so So 
So I tell people, A, look in the seven areas of life. So look in different forms, exactly what you're saying. So look in career, financial, mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, and all relationships, friends, family, and romantic. And number two, you can start general and get more specific over time because the idea is to reprogram because everything else follows. Like if you believe you're abundant, you open up your reticular activating system, you start capitalizing more on opportunities, taking opportunities, thinking you're deserving and worthy, like you're thoughts, emotions, and behaviors or actions all follow your beliefs. And so, you know, you want to, the idea is to reprogram, even if you feel so non-abundant now. And so another thing people can do is they can start more general. They can go, it's possible to become abundant or more abundant. And then they can look for pieces of evidence for why it's possible. And then they can go, um, I'm becoming a little bit more abundant than I used to be, or I'm learning about abundance, which is a step towards abundance. And then look for things like that. And then I think it's possible for myself to be abundant and then find pieces of evidence. And then you, so you can warm yourself up to eventually being like, I am an abundant person and then finding the evidence for that and then reinforcing that belief. So you, I love what you said because it's like so in resonance and, um, and it's really, really powerful to do that. Wow. Yeah. It reminds me of an episode I did a while back with somebody who had discovered that there's three mindsets in order to really create a goal. And she realized that, you needed to understand that what you were going for was possible, that it's possible for someone like you. And then the third one is that what I'm doing right now is something that makes it possible. It's like a, a valid avenue to get there. And so what I learned from that is first, when I'm going for a new goal, it's really important for me to find people that are already doing it, whether I'm following them online or I know them in my life. And I'm like, okay, well, this person has built a business successfully. I just need to be around them so that I see that that's possible, not around all the people that are stuck in jobs that they hate that have never thought that it's possible to get out of it. You know what I mean? Like, so show yourself that it's possible and then start to find people that are like you or that have a similar story or that came from the same amount of money or whatever it is that you relate to the most in that starting point so that you can see that people like you can do it. And then after that, once you really build that up, you're much more highly motivated to start getting down to the nitty gritty of, okay, now how am I going to become this person that holds this belief? I love that. I think that's so beautiful and so powerful. Well, thank you so much for everything that you've shared today. I feel like we could have talked about this for another hour, but you have a book for the people that are interested in it. So, so for listeners who are interested in learning more about you and the different types of attachment styles and how it applies to their day to day, where's the best place for them to connect with you online? Yeah. So at personaldevelopmentschool.com, so all one word, um, we have a free attachment style quiz that comes with like a one page report and a video report for you to understand the reprogramming of your attachment style. Um, and then we also have in the personal development school, I've written and recorded about 35 different courses on everything from like attachment style reprogramming to belief reprogramming to like 21 different tools to reprogram all components of your subconscious mind. We have like an understanding your subconscious needs course. We have codependency and enmeshment courses, boundaries, shadow work, like so many different courses in there. And then they come with, I do four live calls with our students every week. And we have all these previous recorded webinars and we have like a community in there and a discord chat channel and a members forum and all these sort of really cool things. So there's all that stuff over there. And then I also put free content on YouTube every day at personal development school dash Gibson. All of the links from this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 152. So your challenge this week, of course, is going to start with awareness. That's the first step really to any change. If you're in denial about where you're coming from, it's going to be really hard to get where you're going. So be honest with yourselves. How are you showing up in your relationships? What patterns have you noticed? What pattern are you noticing in this relationship or your last relationship? If you're anything like me, your patterns might evolve over time, especially if you're an empath or if you're a little bit codependent, a lot of times you will become the counterpart to the person that you're with. This can even happen based on what type of family you grew up in. If you had a really intense family member or a family member with an addiction or a mental imbalance, that even increases your chance of being that counterpart and automatically adapting because it was your way of survival when you were a child. So take notice of how you're showing up, what patterns are emerging, and also take notice of the patterns from your partner. If you are showing up in a completely healthy way in your relationship and your partner's just not, 
That in itself is a pattern. What are you putting up with? What are you settling for? At the same time, it might show you some of your blind spots in your own patterns. We tend to attract people that are on the same emotional levels that we are, maybe with different ways of expressing it. So if you have a partner that is doing something that you see is obviously unhealthy, ask yourself what inside you is attracting that. It doesn't necessarily need to be your behavior. It may just be your beliefs about what you deserve. It might be parts of your behavior that you can't really see or that you're used to denying. So again, bring awareness to some of this stuff and then apply what we've learned in this episode to see how you can start to change it or start to heal yourself first. So if this episode was helpful for you, or you are thinking of that friend who you know needs this episode, please tap the share button or take a screenshot and tag Mind Love Melissa and Mind Love Podcast and share it on Instagram. Also, feel free to reach out to me. I love hearing from you guys. I especially love understanding your biggest takeaways from each episode because it helps me become a better interviewer so I can bring you even better content since I will know better what resonates with each of you. If you haven't yet left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that is so, so helpful. It really helps with the growth of the show and it really brings a smile to my face. It's like receiving a love letter from someone you didn't know loved you. That's how I feel every time I get one. So as always, thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. Thank you.